yeah, the more the more we do things, the better we get at them. And it's it's number one, helping the patients. Uh, number two, it's super rewarding. I mean, tell me somebody who hasn't said, boy, it's been very rewarding to do something and improve on it and get better and better at it. I mean, they call this the practice of optometry, the practice of medicine uh, for a reason. So yeah, I look at eyelid lesions differently today than I did 15 years ago because you know you do something so much and, and when you're when you're doing procedures and there's a different appreciation for the anatomy and the physiology and all that good stuff and it it just adds to your knowledge base and your experience base and it it ultimately at the end of the day it provides better patient care for the next patient and the next patient and the next patient uh, the more experience that you have and the more that you do Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with my good friends, Dr. John McCall and Dr. Nate Lighthizer, and we talked about the AAOMS. I'm not going to tell you exactly what that means. I want you to listen to the episode to find out. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. My patients with macular degeneration want clear and succinct recommendations from me related to products and solutions that can benefit their long-term ocular health and vision. To do this for my patients, I need to be confident that what I'm recommending will have a benefit to them. And that's why my supplement of choice is MacuHealth. MacuHealth is specifically formulated and clinically proven to rebuild and maximize macular pigment over a lifetime. This results in enhanced visual performance and aids in the treatment and prevention of age-related macular degeneration. I've discussed carotenoid absorption on this podcast with Dr. Nolans and Stringham, and MacuHealth uses a patented process called micromycel technology. And this technology is clinically proven to increase carotenoid concentrations at the target tissue and deliver the highest level of bioavailability studied to date. MacuHealth has been great for my patients. We really feel like we have the ability to help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. If you're not utilizing MacuHealth for your patients, check it out for yourself by contacting your MacuHealth representative. Young and emerging presbyopes can be tricky. These patients want and need additional help at near, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. We've had this lens now for long enough that we've been able to see how simple transitions can be from an adaptation standpoint from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. The MyDay multifocal material is CooperVision's softest one-day hydrogel lens and features aquaform technology combining the unique balance of high oxygen permeability with natural wettability in one material. The result is a highly breathable lens that keeps our patient's eyes looking clear, white, and healthy. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. And, you know, uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you guys on is, is to talk about just the idea of, you know, surgical privileges within optometry, surgical excellence within optometry. And then also, I'd like to start off by discussing kind of the ACGME minimums for ophthalmology. So a lot of times we think in the profession that, you know, we don't like to have minimums in, in law or minimums in statute. And I agree. I, I don't like to have that either. But um, when you look at the minimum number of surgical procedures that the American, that, that the ACGME, uh, what, what's that, the, the Accreditation Council on Graduate Medical Education, 
uh, requires for ophthalmology, uh, it is staggeringly low. And ophthalmology doesn't like to talk about that. So I can share this with everybody, but Nate uh, or John, off the top of your mind, have you, um, do you know what those numbers are? Uh, you can, you can look at our numbers and basically subtract one and you'll know exactly what they are. But, uh, Nate, <laughs> so correct me if I'm wrong, those but numbers. I do know those numbers. It was like, uh, it was like, uh, what, what five, I'm, I'm thinking five I'm SLT, right five yags. So, okay. Yeah, it yep. depends on the procedure, depends on the procedure you're talking about, but generally speaking for the, the procedures that optometry is doing that the laser procedures, the Shalazians, when you look at the ophthalmology numbers for when they exit residency, it's somewhere between about three and six, depending on the procedure uh, that you do. Uh, last I checked, I thought capsulotomy was five and SLT was five and maybe iridotomy was four. Maybe Shalazian was, was three. I'm not even sure if Shalazian was on there, but obviously they have minimums for cataract surgery. That's going to be the main one and, and other things. But for the procedures you know, that are equivalent to what we're doing, it's somewhere between like three and six. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, so and, so and, I've got them pulled up for the, for the listeners who can also watch right now. Uh, so actually for the, for the people who can't see the screen, I've got the ACGME minimums pulled up right now and uh, YAG capsulotomy. Uh, the S next to it means they're the primary surgeon. That's five. Uh, laser trabeculoplasty, the S means obviously primary surgeon, five. And then iridotomy is four. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Nate. Um, not as many as you'd think. And then when you actually look at what the outcomes are, which I believe I have in this report as well, is uh, there's another report. I'm going to have to pull that up. But in any case, the, um, I, can't, I, I can't know exactly how this works, but there are some um, who graduate or finish their residency and don't meet these minimums. So I'm not sure what they have to do. But if you look at, at the report of the actual outcomes, there are uh, ophthalmologists that that uh, that finish with with actually like one or two, uh, you know, laser trabeculoplasties during their ophthalmology residency. So, what's your take home yeah. from that, uh, John? Well, it's it just what you uh, stated, Chris. It's amazingly low, and those of us that have had the the opportunity. I'm in East Texas. Obviously, Texas is not a surgical state, but Louisiana is. Now, I'm not that far from Louisiana, so. I went up there and got some beautiful instruction at um, at Tahlequah with Nate. Uh, he's my primary instructor there, and then came down and started doing these procedures. And uh, then, as I testified during the legislature, as a lot of us have, and then I guess you know the epiphany moment was when I saw Newsom, uh, California did a wonderful job passing a surgery bill, and then it got vetoed. And and Governor Newsom said, "Well." It's it's because I just don't think optometry has the training that ophthalmology has. So that got me thinking. I said, what is their training? And I went to look it up and I went, seriously, this is all it is. Why don't, why don't we come up with a measure of excellence that's above that? And that's, that we kind of started the whole thing. And I called uh, my, my partner and I called Nate and we kind of, you know, you took it from there. And that's, that's the way this, uh, academy kind of was uh, uh formed and and it, it's still going through a little bit of a you know maturation process but uh we're uh, we're real pleased with the with the where, where we are right now and what it will stand for to me it just it shows how 
you know, optometry is so very capable and so very qualified. And you'll you'll hear ophthalmology, specifically political ophthalmology, mentioning 17,000 hours of training and all these surgical cases. But when push comes to shove, the procedures that optometry is pushing for, YAG capsulotomies and SLTs and laser PIs and injections of lidocaine into the eyelid and eyelid procedures, again, the number is is between, you know, three and five, three and six uh, for these and optometry is incredibly uh, well qualified. I mean, during my residency, I did you know between sixty and seventy laser procedures. So I far exceeded uh, that. I was testifying in New Hampshire um, a while back, and one of the ophthalmology residents on the other side uh, said that that he did twenty five um, lasers during his residency. Well, I'm like, oh, I got I got more training during my residency on lasers than than you did. So I think the take home point is just. Uh, that it's not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of procedures and that optometry is incredibly well qualified uh, to perform these procedures, should they so desire. We're a very broad profession. We all know we have some people that are just contact lens experts and low vision experts and vision therapy experts. And we have experts like John McCall that are laser procedure experts and injections, et cetera, et cetera. And just, you know, recognizing the excellence of optometry that we are. Yeah, and I think, you know, you and I, have talked about the the data just in terms of utilization and you know in in nebraska we're not a huge state but but um you know we hear all the time there's plenty of there's plenty of ophthalmologists that can serve the need and i just searched uh, and i'm going to share this screen actually with everybody so if, if there's a, a data pool that i like to search to get information about what what is actually happening in um in our profession and other professions and so I just quickly searched uh, Nebraska data, and um, ooh, now it's got to reload. Nope, that's not it. So I just switched, quickly searched Nebraska data, and what I found was basically in all of Nebraska, there's about 16 ophthalmologists that, that have billed any uh, SLTs, 16 in the whole state. And the vast majority of them bill almost no SLTs. Um, and I think, you know, you're going to see obviously higher amounts with, um, we're going to see higher amounts when we, when it comes to, um, YAG capsulotomies, but, uh, but the bottom line is that they're just not doing that many. So here's, um, I'm going to share this. So what's been your experience then, John, in, in terms of your local community, when you're moving people um, from from one place to the next in order to in order to uh, meet their needs what's their how do they respond like I, I can have this done in Louisiana but I can't have this done in Texas what well, basically um, you know I've, I always jokingly say there's three kind of practices in the United States there's urban rural and then the wilderness America where I happen to be so all of my patients for the last 35, 40 years have been going to the, the best cataract group who are good friends of mine, uh, 60 miles away. Well, I'm, I'm about 20 miles further to Louisiana. If they'll drive 60 miles to get cataract surgery, they'll drive another half hour to see me. Uh, and when I explain to them that we're going to do a procedure that, especially with my patients, that I hold the... Uh, the method patent on that they, they, they have a lot of confidence. So I would say uh, this is starting my 10th year of doing surgery uh, this year. And in 10 years, I've probably had three 
that said, you know, I just, I, I can't go to Louisiana. Um, hmm. the other, the other obstacle is, is, is Medicaid because that's, it's crossing state lines and, and that, right. that doesn't, that doesn't work on that, but it, it really hasn't been a problem. I mean, patients will go where patients are comfortable going and who they have faith in. Nate, when you think about the, um, the need for additional recognition in, in, um, by performing some of these cases, what do you think that says to our profession, you know, other, other providers in the profession? And what do you think it says to the public about the differences between optometrists? Is that confusing to people? Does it clarify? What's, what's one of the goals of this? Yeah, I, I think one of the goals is just to recognize excellence for what optometry is. I would hope the answer would be the same for both of them, is it, it is a feather in the cap uh, to optometry and the provider. And that, you know, just because I am not a contact lens expert and don't hold some of those contact lens fellowships doesn't mean I'm not less of an optometrist. I'm still, uh, you know, a pretty good optometrist. And we have such a broad things that we do. So I would like to think that, number one, for the public, it is going to be a, an extreme compliment for anybody who is a fellow of the American Academy of Optometric Medicine and Surgery and holds an FAAOMS, that it's a, it's a big feather in their cap, but it's also a feather in the cap of optometry going, look at the excellence of the providers that we have in this area. So I think the public would view this uh, extremely positively. And I would like to hope that optometry would as well. You know, I, I, I look on very high regards to people like my wife that does no lasers and no injections, but is a contact lens expert and has all kinds of qualifications in that, or maybe it's low vision, or maybe it's the vision therapy, whatever it is, is even our colleagues who go, man, look at what cool things our colleagues and friends are doing in their arena, and you do your cool thing in your arena. So I would like to hope and think that it would be looked at uh, positively uh, by both patients and our colleagues. Um, it's not a threat. It's not making me any better or worse than anybody else. It's just recognizing um, the excellence that a provider has exhibited in this particular area. Uh, and it's again, it's a feather in the cap for that provider and to me for all of op optometry. So I mean, the, the, the classic um, analog to this would be COVD, right? Nobody gets mad about, I mean, that's definitely a sub, like a subspecialty. It's because I, I could see that, you know, fellowship in American Academy of Optometry, FAAO, um, you know, it's kind of open to all, you know, you can, you can achieve it by a number of different paths. So I could see why it's not exactly the same. I mean, I, I don't, I, I agree with you, Nate. I, I don't think it's necessarily dramatically different enough, but I think some could make the case that, well, it's not exactly the same because it's a subspecialty, but with COVD, we don't have a lot of people uh, running around concerned that we have a different class of optometrists that, that have that, that like, as you, as you determine, or as you describe a feather in the cap. So John, is this, is, is there any concern that this turns into board certification 1.0 and board certification 2.0? No, as, as you know, uh, uh, I have been there, done that on both of those. And that's why we stayed away from the word, uh, certification, um, and uh, a bit early, we were using the word credentialing, and now uh, we're moving away from that because it's more like what Nate said, and that is we just want to recognize excellence in care. And this care, it happens to be surgery care. 
And just so to, so I can be crystal clear about this, I mentioned testifying in front of the legislature in, here in Texas. I did the lead testimony on that, and then listening to Newsom say when he vetoed that that we didn't have the training, that got me to thinking about having a level of excellence. But but this is not to, to help states pass legislation. That's the that's the that that falls on AOA, State Government Relations Committee. They they are the ones that the state should reach out to. But as we go forward, uh, we have you know roughly depending on how you want to count them around twelve states now that have surgery. Well, that's going to soon go to a lot more. And the reason it's going to do that is because the demographics of this country. Just if you look at how many ophthalmologists are going to be here in ten years and how many optometrists we're going to have, they simply cannot keep up. It's not possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it is, and and I think about you know the Midwest in particular. I'm very optimistic of about a number of states in the Midwest, um, and as I know Nate, you are as well. John, you are as well. Is that you know I think we're we're very close to that tipping point, and then it, there there is something that is is nice about proving or I or showing or. Um, going through a, a specified process, it, it, even just within you know your professional self of of being like, yeah, I, I thought that was hard. That was challenging. I had to I had to you know talk about why I did what I did and um, articulate the the nuances of complications potentially and how I managed those complications or how I prevented those complications. I remember walking away. I mean, my, I've had my fellowship now for probably. 14 years. And, um, and I remember walking away at that time and feeling like, wow, I'm, I, I got, I mean, yeah, I, I've got this, you know, and, and it wasn't like it was so hard or it was really grilling, but, you know, diving deep into whatever the thing is that you're doing and then defending that there's a, there's a lot to be said with it. The same thing with board certification is it's like, well, I had been out of school just, just enough time to wonder, do I really understand this stuff? And I'll tell you, that um, that the maintenance over time has been really helpful for me to make sure, like, um, you know, the, the maintenance of certification. I know we're not talking about board certification here, but the maintenance of certification in my mind has been really valuable because it is a touch point that I have to prove that I'm not only just reading stuff, but I'm retaining it for long enough to, to answer questions that are actually like dig a little bit deeper uh, as far as applying things. And so, you know, I know this isn't certification, but if you have some sort of those things built into a program like that, it it does help the doctor, one, be confident that they've been able to prove to somebody else that they have achieved a certain level of knowledge, education, and training, demonstrated that they can understand and assimilate information and have a back and forth conversation about it, and then making sure that they stay up to date on uh, on those new technologies. You know, Nate, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, but there's a new company now that has a uh, a direct SLT. So mm-hmm. what's that going to do to the level of care and the simplicity of the care? It's going to be more more about, you know, am I identifying the best candidates? Am I um, kind of titrating my post-operative expectations and treatments to maximize those uh, the the effect of that SLT specifically? Um, you know, I mean, there's just new technology like that that comes along that um, could continually be uh, assessed by by a, an organization such as the one you're talking about. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, going back to your previous point, uh, and then I'll get into direct SLT just a bit. But, you know, 
think of how proud you two were when you graduated optometry school, an accomplishment that what you did, you got through optometry school. And then, you know, think of how proud many people are when they finish residency. You know, we, we can go through optometry school. You know, many did a residency, but not all. Think of how proud those people are when they get that fellowship in the in COVD, you know, that, the fellowship in FAAO, as you said, those are proud moments and they add to us as individuals and they add to us as a profession as well. So you are completely correct on that. You are so spot on of, of you know, when you achieve something like this, there is a sense of professional accomplishment and a sense of professional pride. And I think that is extremely important. Um, and technology evolves and advances all the time. You know, SLT has evolved tremendously. We've talked about it on this podcast before and in many other arenas. It's best utilized first line therapy. And yeah, direct SLT was approved in uh, in December. And it's it'll be definitely a, a disruptor in the space. And I'm not saying that in a negative sense or a positive sense. It's just, it's going to be different and see how this comes about. And it hasn't been rolled out yet. But if you take a procedure that we know eases the burden on patients so they don't have to take those drops all the time and now this procedure can be done much much more efficiently and without a lens on the eye and it's partly automated you know it'll be it's going to be interesting and fun to see where it goes uh, in this space because the literature is pretty clear now from the light study the SLT med study but oh, the yeah. light study was the biggest one patients do better with, with SLT compared to drops, they're more likely to progress on drops. So, you know, it's just interesting as technology evolves and advances, we have to stay up to date. I mean, think about it this way. It, it is an absolute fact that optometry looks different in 2024 than it did in, let's pick a number, 1990. You know, 34 years ago, which isn't that long ago, optometry looks much different. What are we gonna look like 34 years from now in 2058, you know, I mean, and I don't think if those doctors knew what it looked like today from 34 years ago, I'm not sure they would have, they would believe it. Um, and I'm not sure we would believe it today if we said, all right, snapshot, this is what it's going to look like 34 years from now. I'm not sure we would believe it, you know, because things evolve and they advance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, this is this is just kind of a side note, um, but but since you you guys run a lot of uh, studies, do you? Or I haven't seen one, and I haven't asked the question of the literature yet. But off the top of your head, do either of you uh, have any data to understand how patients perceive their disease state uh, when they're having to use a medication every single day versus having to check in with you, you know, four four to Four to two to two to four times a year to see how their pressure is and like do they actually perceive it as less of a, a burden uh, on their lifestyle i mean obviously like less of a treatment burden but like just in general do they perceive their life their quality of life to be better uh, i haven't seen any studies on that my suspicion is that it would be because they're not thinking of it all the time and i think it depends on chris the, the the patient and the number of medications being used. And it's not just now. I don't think of it as, are you putting two drops in your eyes or three drops in your eyes? Because we have so many combination drops now. If you're putting three drops in your eyes, you could be using five medications. And what we found out is that over time, uh, you can, you can uh, with the preservatives in these drops, you can damage the trabecular meshwork. So you have to look at glaucoma as a long-term therapy treatment. Where, where is this patient going to be 25 years from now? 
are they going to be at a stage? Because I can say this from experience because my mother's 97 and my dad diagnosed her glaucoma when he was halfway through optometry school back in the, uh, back in the late forties. She's had glaucoma longer than most people have been alive. She's had a couple of traps. They've already, they've already, you know, fell with age and now I've got her on maximum medical therapy. But the problem is not much works on her anymore. And so the longer my theory, my personal opinion, the longer you can go and uh, keep the patient off of drops or on less drops, the better patient, the better that patient's going to last, uh, 10, 20 years from now in this disease state. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you, John. I think even if you so so let's say you can repeat SLT three times, and maybe even just take it just take it down to two times, right? And you can be confident it's going to work twice. And the, and the lowest level you're going to expect it to work once it works in that 80 percent group, that it's going to work for let's say three years. But on the highest level, you you could expect five years. So you get at, at minimum, you know, at minimum, you're thinking a six to ten year window that you get to push that patient's life out without having to have another medication. And certainly a six-year window based on the light data, that's pretty pretty powerful, really, when you think about it. Um, so I think, I think this is, when I talk, Nate, you and I have discussed this before, but when I talk about the impact of patients' quality of life and access to care, um, SLT, in my mind, is much, it's a much more compelling story than uh, YAG. And yet most optometrists think of YAGs as like, I want to get YAGs, but I don't know. I, I look at glaucoma and I think for the same reasons, John, you're talking about is it's, you never really know how good you are at managing glaucoma until you're probably as long as, you know, 15 years in practice like Nate and I, and certainly we know how good you are by the time you've been in practice that long, John. Right. So, so like you never can really identify like, was I good at, at treating glaucoma? It takes so long. To, to know how, how well you are, you know, based on how your patients are progressing, that uh, it just starts to become clear at maybe year 10, 11, 12 uh, about what you're doing and what your philosophy is and how that's impacting patients. And I, I just think, I, I believe that, that SLT technology and probably others are going to be so minimally invasive, so effective at delaying medication treatments and all the things that it does to our ocular surface. You know, I've, I've mentioned on the podcast, maybe I have, I, I've definitely mentioned in public that the, the new uh, clinical practice guidelines on glaucoma from the American Optometric Association have a pretty strong statement that is essentially like a should. It was, it's, it's something like patients who are on glaucoma medications should be evaluated for ocular surface disease, which to me is like, that's, that's a, a, an astounding um, statement. I mean, it's intuitive to all of us, but it's a very powerful statement on how seriously we should take the side effects of these medications. And a, a good point you're making there, Chris, is uh, the reason that optometry will em has embraced this, if you think about it before this, if you referred a patient to somebody for SLT and they came back and you didn't get a good result, what do you say to that patient? It, whereas if you did the if you did the procedure yourself, you you know that maybe that patient was a little jumpy. Maybe you had to calm down. Maybe though you got in there and it was one angle was a little bit more closed than you thought, so you could only do a 270. So you jot that down. I was only able to get about 270 degrees on here. This patient may need an LPI in the future. All those things you'll know about when you're treating. Whereas if you refer it out and they come back and the patient's looking at you, well, I'm right back where I was. And you have 
you, you have no knowledge of was that a difficult procedure? Did the ophthalmologist decide I'm in a hurry and the patient's jumping and I'm just going to do the minimal amount and get out of here because I get paid the same? Not that anybody would do that, but you don't know. You just don't know because you wasn't there. So my uh, treatment and my success rate has gone way, way up because I'm the one that did the procedure. And I take a lot of pride in that. And when they come back, I know what to look for. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to bill with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be billed together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. One of the challenging things with patients is when they invest in a really high quality pair of glasses and and customized lenses, it can be challenging to keep those lenses clean, keep them scratch-free, smudge-free. And so we now have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients the best-in-class anti-reflective coating in a way that is really high resistance so that they're not uh, having to care for their lenses as much as when those lenses are caring for them. So remember that you can provide patients that best-in-quality, best-in-class transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com slash Crizal. Yeah, that's a good point. It also, you know, and, and Nate, you can comment on this as well, but I think that point, John, kind of articulates the idea of the, the more expert you become in one specific area. And this is, you know, Nate, we're talking about SLTs, but you know, I, I would guess that the way that you look at an eyelid lesion is, you know, I, I've, I've read all the books. I've removed tons of lesions when I was in school. But, but the way you look at, a, at the I had an eyelid lesion and the margins of an eyelid is just dramatically different than the way I look at it now because, because you're so used to thinking about all these other things that just don't matter as much uh, in what I'm in clinic because I'm not re- I can't remove those those lesions. And so, like, I mean, I can tell you for sure that, you know, the way I look at my bombing gland structure and function and uh, other anatomy around the eyelid is dramatically different than the vast majority of optometrists who don't look at that all the time. Uh, And so so to your point, John, it's like, you know, you're thinking on all of those different things becomes deeper and more nuanced and more complex. uh, And that will not just serve your patients who had an SLT, but it'll serve your patients who, who just need gonioscopy or who just need, you know, some other aspect of their care that, 
you've just been able to understand more about and look at the nuance there differently. Um, and it translates into better care. Yeah. The more, the more we do things, the better we get at them. And it's, it's number one, helping the patients. Uh, number two, it's super rewarding. I mean, tell me somebody who hasn't said, boy, it's been very rewarding to do something and improve on it and getting better and better at it. I mean, they call this the practice of optometry, the practice of medicine uh, for a reason. So yeah, I look at eyelid lesions differently today than I did 15 years ago, because, you know, you do something so much. And, and when you're, when you're doing procedures and there's a different appreciation for the anatomy and the physiology and all that good stuff. And it, it just adds to your knowledge base and your experience base. And it, it ultimately, at the end of the day, it provides better patient care for the next patient and the next patient and the next patient, uh, the more experience that you have and the more that you do. So I agree. So and when, me, you're following, when you're following your yeah, own ahead, outcomes, when you're following your own outcomes, uh, you, how much millijoules of energy you use for the various pigment and, uh, uh, you know, without going into depth on there, obviously if you've got a lot of pigment, deeply pigmented, it takes much less millijoules of energy in there. And my philosophy over the last 10 years has changed. I use much less millijoules of energy. I get a reaction. But I used to want a reaction on every every time every time I shot the laser. Now, if I get every third or fourth, I know I'm getting a reaction to the tissue. So, um, your knowledge—if you're doing the procedure and you're following the outcomes—your knowledge of of how much to to uh, millijoule, how much energy to use in different situations gets better and better. So, I would just tell you, I'm a lot better now than I was five years ago, and I thought I was pretty good five years ago. <laughs> Yeah, and, that's and the guess fun, what? I mean, the that's same the is true for point. that's the practice, and the same is true for for ophthalmologists, for our brain surgeons, for our heart surgeons, for our primary care physicians, for our dentists. Um, you know, it, we all we all get better. The same is true for Patrick Mahomes here on Super Bowl weekend. Now that he's seven years into his career, rather than less than that. Yeah. So listen, that I'm going to take that as needing to be respectful of your time. But but here's what I want to do is I want to project forward um, in your mind. I'm not I'm not asking you to lay out what this what this new organization is going to have in terms of qualifications and requirements, because I know that's still in flux. But um, but in a perfect scenario, what do you think, um, you know, three months, six months, 12 months down the line? What's your anticipation of where people are going to be able to go to and be able to start kind of um, going through some of the requirements so that they can sit for this fellowship? Well, right now, where we are is is only the states that are actually have passed surgical um, laws that they can do that uh, with with maybe an exception like Indiana, who uh, was not prohibited and now are getting reimbursed by Medicare. They're just as much a surgical state as anybody else. So in a surgical state like that, if you would like to apply, just like you would apply to the academy saying, I'm going to do, uh, I, would, I would like to show excellence in, in my field, and I'm proud of what I'm doing in the way of surgery, you can go on the website and, and apply. There may be, uh, we're, we're still uh, talking about a few other things. Nate and I had a discussion the other day that we may be adding to that because it's early on. But I may mention a byproduct. We do not want there to be any thresholds of any future state. But uh, I was I was talking to Cliff Cottle up in Kentucky, and he said that that's the way Kentucky was, that you had to do so many proctored procedures. 
And when you get locked in that legislative battle and you get locked in a room, you don't know what's going to come out of that room. And yep. if, if there's other states that have that, and I hope they don't, but if they do, as we go from 12 states to 18 states to 24 states, I've got an active license, Chris, in Texas, Louisiana, and Iowa. Uh, being credentialed like this, I could help Texas and I could help Iowa because I have a license there. And, and I've, I've bet the number of procedures. So there'll be more people like me in other states that if that happened, they could cross over and help that. So it, it's not what Nate and I and Dr. Golden were all trying to do in the very beginning, but it may be a byproduct that, that helps out if it, if it comes to that. Yeah. And I say, like I yeah. said, like John said, I just, I, I view this as, as excellence. I view this as uh, a sense of pride for, for the providers, the optometrists and the profession for, you know, showing what they do, showing what we do. And it doesn't make anybody any better than anybody else. It, it provides a, uh, just again, a feather in the cap, as we've said, um, and, and optometry should be proud of that. Just like we're proud of FAAO. We're proud of FCOVD. We're, doctors do residencies. We're proud of that, you know, and we're just proud as our profession is in general. So again, to me, I just keep coming back to recognizing excellence. It's what it's going to do is people that say, you know what? I do YAG caps, uh, LPIs, SLT, Shalazian removals, eyelid procedures, whatever it is. And, you know, I have been helping my patients for a long time, or maybe it's even just been a year or two in one of these recent states. And, you know, I, I think it would be awesome and a sense of pride to, to have that FAAOMS to show the excellence that optometry does. I don't think there's a better way to, to end it except to ask that once once we get closer to some of these other things being more final, I'd love to have you guys back on and just keep me in mind if there's anything you ever need, if you know, from a communication standpoint or from other political action standpoint. I know that you guys aren't po political, but uh, anything that you ever need from me, I'm always here for you. So appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate what you're doing. Right back at you, buddy. I appreciate it, man. And I couldn't have summed it up any better than Nate did. It's just, you know, excellence and care and pride of what we're doing. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks.